And for the rest of us, we're going to turn to Romans 1 again. We're going to be looking at verses 18 to 32. We're um, kind of jump, jumping right in. Again, that's on page 796 if you're using one of the seat Bibles. So, uh, to begin with the question, who does God like better? Who does God side with? I didn't catch that. Who, do, who does God prefer? The Yankees or the Red Sox? <laughs> right. That's an easy one. I gave you an easy one first. Who does God like better, the conservatives or the liberals? Who, boy, that, that one wasn't so easy, was it? Who does God like better, the Americans or the Iraqis? Who does God like better, the gays or the straights? Who does God like better, the ones who attend church every Sunday, sit on two church committees and attend a Bible study, or the ones who didn't grow up in church and only come occasionally? Who does God like better? These are the sorts of questions that the Apostle Paul addresses in the book of Romans. Only in Paul's day, the big rivalry wasn't between the Yankees and the Red Sox. It was between the Jews and the Gentiles. The, the Jews were the faithful churchgoers of Paul's day. The Gentiles were not. The Jews were the descendants of Abraham. They, uh, or Abraham had been God's friend. And, and God had made a covenant with Abraham, a promise to bless his descendants, to make them his people, and, and to bless the world through them. Later, God had, had raised up Moses to lead his people out of Egypt, and, and God had reaffirmed his commitment to them at, at Mount Sinai, that they were his chosen people, his, his royal priesthood, his, his people, a people belonging to God. God did miracles to provide for them. God gave them his, his teachings and his commands. God set his own presence among them and, and led them into his promised land. Later, God gave them kings like David and prophets like Elijah and Isaiah to, to keep them on track, to, to teach them and lead them in God's ways. The, those were the Jews. The Gentiles, on the other hand, were, were everyone else who were not part of God's chosen people, who did not have God's teachings and revelations, who did not enjoy God's presence. Those who were, were going their own way, more or less without God's help and, and far from God. Which group did God like better? <clears throat> well, this was an issue in, in the Roman church to which Paul is, is writing this letter of Romans. And it was an issue because in Rome, as Jews came to follow Jesus, their Messiah, and as Gentiles also came to follow Jesus, these two very different cultures were now coming together as one community, one church, and there was understandably some rivalry between them. You see, when the Roman church had first started, the Jews probably had the pride of place for all the reasons you could imagine given their long pedigree as being God's people, their, their knowledge of God and his word, they had a lot more experience with the things of God than the Gentiles did, who were kind of the newbies at this God thing. But then in AD 49, the history books tell us that the Roman emperor Claudius had kicked all of the Jews out of Rome, including the Jewish Christians, because of some riots that had been happening in the city that were blamed on the Jews. So they were all kicked out, and so now suddenly 
this Jewish Gentile church in Rome had become a Gentile-only church. And it remained a Gentile-only church for over five years until um, the new emperor, Nero, let the Jews return to Rome. So then the Jews come back, and and the, the Jewish Christians come back to church, which for the past five years has been a Gentile-only church and is now a Gentile-led church. And and now the Jews, no doubt, want a place again. They want to say in their church. And and they probably felt like while they were gone, the Gentiles kind of stole their church and were ruining it on them. Maybe they were saying things like, hey, since when do we serve pork at our potlucks? (laughs) And, And next month is Passover. Why isn't that on the church calendar anymore? These were important biblical issues of, of right and wrong for the Jews, but, but the Gentiles didn't get it. They didn't see it that way. And um, so Paul is going to get into all this much later in the letter of Romans, chapters 12 to 15. But right now, it's enough to know that there's a tension, there's a rivalry. And the question behind it has to do, when you really get down to the bottom of it, is who does God like better? Well, Paul's going to address this in Romans. He's going to give us a bunch of theology first before he gets to his practical applications at the end. And he begins with the first two and a half chapters of Romans by introducing both players in this rivalry. In chapter 1, he introduces us to the Gentiles. And then in chapters 2 and 3, he will introduce us to the Jews. And Greg Howe will look at at that with us next week. So... Now, that today, the challenge for us in reading this letter is that for most of us today, this whole Jew-Gentile tension and distinction isn't something we struggle with day to day, right? Um, and so maybe the way this tension is going to relate to us today is between churchy Christians and worldly Christians. Between those who, like Jews, grew up their whole lives around church and religion and those who, like the Gentiles, did not. Which does God like better? Well, today Paul begins with the Gentiles, the worldly Christians. And let's realize that Paul himself is a Jew. And, and he, so he's going to paint a picture of these worldly Gentiles from a Jewish churchy perspective. You, you probably picked that up when Doug read it for us this morning. Um, and, and Paul's going to be pretty hard on the Gentiles. And so right away, he's going to have all the Jews on his side, amening with him about those Gentiles and the way they live. But don't worry, when he gets to chapter 2, he's going to turn on the Jews and he's going to give it to them too, as we'll see next week. All right, but look how he starts in on the Gentiles, the worldly people. He's not picking on any particular individual, but rather he's looking out at the Gentile world, the Gentile culture, the, the world's way of living, And he's taking them in all in one sweep, beginning in verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Here Paul's addressing the question, what's wrong with the world out there? Have you ever looked at the world with with its wars, its broken relationships, its heartache and its crime and its oppression, and thought, there's something wrong here? Of course, right? And people have answered that what's wrong question in different ways. Those who don't believe in God these days might say, well, we just evolved this way. It's the survival of the fittest. And um, so people do what they need to do to survive, and we can't really blame them too much. Um, Others say, yeah, but 
but we're humans. We're, we're more developed than animals. And so we should know better. We should act better than this. And so what people need is education. People need to be better educated. And if they were, then they would act civilly. Well, for those like Paul who believe in one God who created all things, neither of these answers will do. Because if there's a creator God who made everything, then that God has to be at the center of our picture of reality. And if God isn't at the center, then our view of reality is is going to get distorted and and things are going to unravel from there. And, And that's what Paul sets out to show. He starts with the belief that there's one God who created everything, and then Paul works from there, and he sets out to show what happens when we remove God from the center like the Gentile world had done. And it's a downward slide, and Paul describes it in four steps. First step, you remove God from the center. You don't acknowledge God's greatness. You don't worship the one who created you. You don't give God thanks for all the blessings around you. Um, so what that God created the world, you say? Yeah, I don't care. Um, and, and I'm going to act as if God doesn't matter, that it, as if God's not important. Verse 21, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Now, Paul makes an assumption here which is not popular today. And that is that Paul assumes that everyone has plenty of evidence to see that there's a great God who created everything, whether you believe in evolution or not. There's plenty of evidence, according to Paul. Verses 19 to 20. What may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's individual or invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Paul is saying, just look around you at the, the beauty of the sunsets. The grandeur of the starry sky, the snowflakes on the trees. Look at the wonderful complexity of of living systems and the intelligence and the tenderness and the goodness that human beings exhibit. Paul says all these things just scream out that there's a God who is great, who is powerful, who is eternal. But of course, many people disagree. They say all of it could have just evolved all by itself without a God. And, and, and we've just evolved to have concepts like, like beauty and, and grandeur. But they don't really mean anything. They're just neurons firing in our brains. So, so who's right? Are, are Paul and, and his fellow Jews just ignorant religious folk and there is no God? Or are they right that the existence of God is actually as obvious as day? Well, you'll have to decide for yourself. But, but let's go with Paul's train of thought just to see where his argument leads him. Because he concludes next that if God's existence and God's greatness are obvious from what we see all around us, then to ignore God is foolishness. Which brings us to the second step in the downward slide that Paul describes. To remove God from the center of it all is to ignore the obvious, which is to think foolishly. Verse 21 and 22. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave him thanks, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. 
Paul is, is asserting that to deny God and to explain away all the beauty and grandeur, the meaning, the intelligence, the structure in the world as just a cosmic accident is not actually wisdom and high intellect. It's actually downright stupidity. It's a sign of a darkened mind and and futile thinking. And and the real reason Paul suggests that people uh, think that God doesn't exist is that they don't want him to exist. Verse 18, they suppress the truth by their wickedness. It's inconvenient to have a God, God in charge. So let's conclude that no such God exists and explain away the evidence that he does And if we keep telling ourselves enough that there's no evidence for God, then pretty soon we'll all start believing it. Well, Paul says this is foolishness. Why? Well, what happens when you look at a photograph and you miss the main thing in the picture? Or or you read an article or you listen to a conversation and you miss the main point? What happens when you overlook the main thing and you focus instead on something that's of far less importance? Well, Francis Chan in his book, Crazy Love, gives an example of this. He writes, suppose you're an extra in an upcoming movie. You'll probably scrutinize that one scene where a hundred people are are milling around just waiting for that two-fifths of a second when you can see the back of your head. (laughs) Maybe your mom and your closest friend get excited about that two-fifths of a second with you, maybe. But no one else will realize it's you. Even if you tell them, they won't care. Let's take it a step further, he says. What if you rent out the theater on opening night and invite all your friends and family to come see the new movie about you? (laughs) People will say, you're crazy. (laughs) How could you think this movie is about you? Then he concludes, many of us are even more delusional than the person I've been describing. So many of us think and live like the movie of life is all about us. Isn't it funny how everyone else in the world knows that life isn't all about me, except me? (laughs) And you're laughing because you're the same way. (laughs) At least my wife's laughing. (laughs) Uh, Chan here is making the same point that Paul's making. That when we lose perspective and we forget who it's all about, we're delusional. We're not thinking clearly. We've lost the main point that it's all about God, and as a result, all of our other thinking gets out of focus too. Well, then Paul goes on third to give the next step in this downward slide. Verse 22. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Idolatry. In their foolishness, the Gentiles made their own gods to look like created things, human beings, birds, animals, reptiles. And they started worshiping the created stuff. You know, there are actually very few atheists in the world. Most human beings um, are incurably religious. And, And in Paul's day, and still today, most people in the world worship something or other. I think we humans do this because even though we'd like to be at the center of the world, most of us know that we can't. We know that we're not powerful enough or smart enough or self-sufficient enough to rule the world. Shuck, some of us have a tough time even just trying to survive and hold our lives together. And we realize that 
that unless we're, we're super rich or we're super famous or we're super powerful, other people aren't going to treat us like gods, even though we wish they would. <laughs> well, if we can't be gods ourselves, then what's the next best thing? Well, it's to have gods that are on our side who can help us out, that, that we can sort of control to get what we want and need. So if I can't be a god, then, then at least I'd like to have one close to me, to have one nearby, which, which will do what I want, what I need. And, and that's what an idol is. It's, it's a god that we make up that's great and that's powerful, but not too powerful. It, it's a god who can help us out, but, but also who needs something from us, who needs our worship, who needs our sacrifice, and if we give it what it wants, then it will be persuaded to give us what we want. Well, what's it like to worship a god like that? Well, there's an old Star Trek episode about Harry Mudd on the android planet. I don't know if any of you are Trekkies who that rings a bell for. But this guy, Harry Mudd, was living on this planet that was populated by androids, these human-looking, acting robots. And, and he had a bevy of female androids all who were programmed to be pleasant and submissive to him and to wait on him hand and foot. All except one who Harry programmed to be like his ex-wife, Stella. He turned her on now and then just to hear him, her nag at him, and then he could have the satisfaction of shutting her up by turning her back off. And that might sound like paradise, but Harry hates life there. And, and one reason that Harry hates life there is that you can't have intimacy with robots. Th these android women don't really love him. He has no real relationship with them. And in the same way, you can't really have intimacy with idols. You, you can't love a God that you can control through sacrifices and rituals to make it do what you want. You, you can only have intimacy with a real God. And as pastor and writer Tim Keller once put it, a real God is one who can cross you. A real God is free and, and independent and beyond our control and beyond our understanding. A real God baffles us and confuses us and maddens us and angers us sometimes. We can relate to, we can love a God like that. But that's too much for most people to take, and so we settle for safer domesticated gods. Back then, these were represented by carved images. Today, many of us are too sophisticated for that, and so we idolize a career, or a dream house in a certain neighborhood, or a dream car, or a certain person, or whatever. But there's still idols that we we devote ourselves to, we chase after them, we, we allow them to rule our lives. And that leads to the fourth and the final step in this downward slide that Paul describes. In verses 24, 26, and 28, Paul talks about our lifestyle choices and our immoral living. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Verse 26, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Verse 28, God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what they ought not, what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. 
Notice the repeated phrase, God gave them over. God is actively involved now. If the first few steps of this downward slide was Paul describing um, it as just happening naturally, as in um, if society ignores the God who is at the center of the picture, then we're going to miss the point. We're going to lose perspective. We're going to think foolishly about everything else too. And if we think foolishly as if there's no God, then we're going to wind up making and worshiping idols when we need help because we need some sort of God. But, but now Paul says once we start worshiping idols, God steps in and the language here is judicial. It's God the judge. Just like a human judge might hand a convict over to the prison system to, to serve their sentence, so God hands humanity over to immoral living says Paul. That's our punishment, he's saying, for ignoring God, for choosing to think foolishly and, and to worship idols. But, but here's the thing. God may hand society over to live immorally, but if he does, it's not like we didn't want to live that way anyway. Because the truth is that, that we tend to become like whatever we worship. If you're a Greek boy or you're a Greek girl and you grow up hearing about the great Greek gods um, and you learn all about how they cheat on each other, right? And they, they lie and they get angry and they take vengeance on people and they torture them and they kill them. And these are your role models that you're looking up to and you're worshiping. Then, then how do you think you're going to treat people when you grow up? And if you're an American boy or girl and, and you're taught that the most important thing is to be a success and, and it's to have a certain lifestyle, it's to live in a certain neighborhood and to send your kids to a, a certain kind of school, then how are you going to grow up and, and treat other people who get in the way of that dream? We tend to live and to behave no better than the idols that we worship. And if the only God we worship is ourselves, then we're free to be as self-centered as we wish and to do whatever we want. And God may give us over to that, but we wanted it anyway. But God often has a way of mercifully preventing us from acting that way. Societies make rules. No murder. Don't steal. Don't drink and drive, etc., and cultures have moral standards. It's wrong to bully other kids. It, it's wrong to torture animals, etc., right? And, and theologians call these sorts of rules and, and cultural morals, they call them aspects of God's common grace. To, that, that God in his grace helps, enables society to, to put these sort of things in place so that we act better than we sometimes want to. But when societies turn from God, they think foolishly, they make idols, they worship idols, God eventually punishes us by relaxing the standards and allowing the morals to decay. So that people are free to do just what they want to do, no one's going to stop them, and then we all pay the consequences of living in a society like that. God is handing us over to our own worst desires. Does that make sense, Where, what Paul's arguing, whether you agree with it or not? Um, and so Paul gives us quite a list in verses 29 to 31 of how the Gentile world lived. 
wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, and on and on it goes. And, And what does Paul pick out for special attention in verses 26 and 27? Homosexual acts. Great, I got five minutes late left, and I got to tackle this topic. <laughs> well, we better jump right in very briefly. Um, and given how heated and political this topic is today, there's two errors that we need to avoid when we look at this topic. The one is the conservative error, and the other I'll call the liberal error. The conservative error happens when we forget, we get to these verses, and we forget everything that Paul has just said. And and we grab these verses, we rip them out of context, we wave them in people's faces, and we say, see, God is against homosexuality. Romans says so right here. And so this whole passage just becomes a sermon against homosexuality, as if that's all Paul really meant to say in Romans 1. But in fact, homosexuality isn't Paul's main point here, is it? He's talking about something much bigger. It's just a passing example that he gives, and in fact... When he's listing what's wrong with Gentile societies, he lists lots of other sins too, like gossip, slander, disobeying parents. And we need to take all of those things seriously. And let's not forget that the main problem um, that Paul is addressing actually begins with not making God the center. That's the first and the biggest issue that God has with us. Also, let's notice in verses 26 and 27, Paul is not talking about gay marriage. He's not talking about sexual orientation or same-sex attraction. Paul is only talking about one specific thing. What is it? He's talking about gay sex, about sexual passion and sexual activity that's homosexual in orientation. That's all that he mentions. He mentions it as one notable example among others of the immorality that happens when a whole culture turns from God, moves God out of the center, becomes foolish in its thinking, and pursues idols. Which leads to the liberal error, which says, well, fine, Paul believed that then, but that was a long time ago before people got enlightened, right? We live in the modern age now, and things are different now. Well, there's a couple problems with this view. First of all, things are are not that different now. (laughs) Um, Gay sex was actually very prevalent in Paul's day. It was an issue then just like today, and there were various opinions about it. The Greeks tended to be pro-homosexual. It was very common and accepted, in some cases actually held up as a a model. Um, And so gay sex was pretty well accepted among them, if not encouraged. The Jews, of course, were strongly against it. Um, And the Romans were mixed. They tended to be against it, but but it did go on, including in the bedrooms of several notable Roman emperors. Um, And the same was true in Paul's day of sexuality in general. Sex outside of marriage, cheating on your spouse. It was all happening prevalently in Paul's day, just like today. And so what Paul says back then, he says to a culture not very different from ours. Um, Granted, homosexuality wasn't a political issue then, but it was a social issue and there were various perspectives on it. And Paul comes down decidedly against particularly gay sex. He says that it's sinful. 
Well, then the liberal perspective will say, well, surely this is just Paul's human opinion, right? He's not speaking for God here. He's speaking out of his Jewishness, and we now know that he was wrong. In other words, we can't trust everything the Bible says, just some parts. And the problem with this view has always been, um, and, you know, people, we all are in danger of doing this with many different things in the Bible, picking what we want and discarding others, is the problem is we can't all agree on what parts we can trust. <laughs> um, and so if we can trust Paul, in, if we can't trust Paul in Romans 1, how do we know we can trust him in chapters 4 and 5 when he says God so loved the world that he sent his son to die for us? And, and that if we put our faith in Jesus, God will forgive all of our sins and, and will accept us as his beloved sons and daughters. How do we know that Paul got that part right? Is, is God speaking through Paul or not? And, and if not, well, I guess ultimately if we're going to be true to ourselves, we should close up this book and go home. Um, well, that certainly leaves a lot more questions than answers, and I've oversimplified things a bit because... I only had five minutes. And, and I know Ann and I both have close friends who deal, experience same-sex attraction. I know it's a, it's a, it's a painful, it's, it's, it's a complex issue with a lot of struggling. And I realize I haven't done it justice here. But, but I wanted to um, not make the error of making the whole sermon on that, but hear what Paul is really saying here. Because again, he didn't write Romans 1 to give us God's answers to all our questions about homosexuality. Paul just mentions gay sex as an example in this passage as he makes his main point that Gentile culture, the Gentile lifestyle, was immoral. It was far from God, and it all stemmed from the fact that, that they had forgotten about God. They had taken God out of the center. That was their first and their biggest sin against God. And so Paul's point is these Gentiles who are now leading the church in Rome— these people from a worldly background who have now come to Christ, they shouldn't be haughty toward the Jews, the churchy folk who are rejoining the church. After all, look at the Gentiles' background. Look where they came from. And of course, the message is the same for us in Romans 1. Paul is trying to humble us. He's trying to show us that we need a savior so that we can get back to the God who we've taken out of the center so that we can put God back in the center and give him the gratitude and the, the glory that he deserves so that everything else in life can come into place appropriately for us. But that good news about that Savior who's going to put God back in the center doesn't come until chapter 3, uh, Sunday after next, so we'll have to wait for it. In the meantime, let's ask ourselves, is God at the center of my life? I say he is, but is he really? Does God have my soul allegiance, my soul worship, my top priority? If not, according to Paul, I'm on a downward slide. Let's pray. God, we recognize um, that a lot of the things Paul says in this chapter run very counter to our culture. And because we're products of our culture, they, they feel, some of them feel offensive or grating in our ears. And as we wrestle through that, I pray that our hearts would be humble 
and would be open to, um, to wrestle, but at the end of the day, to let you win. However, however you speak to us as we submit ourselves to your word. Um, give us the courage to do the hard work of trying to research and understand your scriptures. And then give us the humility to receive wherever that leads us. Thank you for your love. Thank you for speaking to us through your word. Amen.